Now, there are many parallels between religion and politics. So even while I absolutely believe in the separation of the church and the state, it's hard to ignore the great overlaps in language and the kind of talk we have about authority. Perhaps you've noticed the similarities this past Tuesday, a day of solemn celebration. Think of words like sacrifice and freedom, visual symbols that we see, and audible anthems, foundational documents and figures. So there's this yearly reminder to commit and to recommit. And while I was growing up, the reminder to be loyal was even more regular and frequent. I remember from the first day of school, I learned to recite the Pledge of Allegiance with classmates. These are not merely words on paper. They bind us to this nation, and they bind us to each other. Again, there are similarities to our religious life. The church exists because of Christ's sacrifice. We are free from sin because of him. This local congregation in particular unites itself based on a foundational set of beliefs summarized in our doctrinal statement. Besides this document, there's also our membership covenant. You sign on to unite with this portion of his visible body. You promise to be faithful in church attendance and in prayer and financial support of his program. I mean, there's much more. Personally, I think we need to strengthen this document with more references to the New Testament one another commands. But that's a discussion for another day. For now, again, we see how these are not just words on paper. They bind us to God, and they bind us to each other. Now, none of this unity and commitment talk is new. The ideas of fidelity to God and loyalty to fellow humans go back thousands of years. It goes back to the biblical concept of the covenant. Now, before I read today's passage, let me provide some background and a quick review or overview of this concept. And I'll begin with the bird's eye view and zoom into 2 Samuel 9. Covenant is one of those heavy and weighty words, and rightly so. We could talk in length, but a quick and effective definition is this. A strong, solemn agreement between two parties. A strong, solemn agreement between two parties. That means there's a lot more commitment involved in a covenant than a local gym membership or even becoming part of a homeowner's association. The two parties can be two beings, human with human, human with God, one people group with another. And if you read the Bible in order, you've already seen multiple covenants between God and his creatures. We're talking about his covenant with Noah and all flesh that's on earth. The covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant between Yahweh and Israel through Moses, Most recently, we saw back in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, his covenant with David to establish his throne forever. If you continue in the scriptures, you'll see how God's covenant with humans is essential to the gospel. 
God restores his relationship with simple humanity through Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. I'll come back to this. For now, trust me when I say that these covenants between God and humanity are truly the most important covenants to study. Now, secondarily, throughout the scriptures, there are also covenants between man and man, between individuals, between groups, with God as witness. These covenants may not get as much attention, but they dramatically shape our lives. Consider the first of such covenants established between male and female on the sixth day of creation, marriage. I entered into this agreement with Ire almost seven years ago, to have and to hold her, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. We continue in Genesis and find non-marital covenants. There's the one between Abraham and Abimelech, the king of Gerar. Isaac essentially repeats what his father did. Jacob with his twin brother Laban. Fast forward, there's that covenant between Israel and the Gibeonites in Joshua 9, founded on deceit, but binding nonetheless. Later, the Ammonites proposed to Jabesh Gilead, a city, a cruel and degrading covenant. We saw that back in 1 Samuel 11. More recently and directly relevant to today's passage, we're reminded of David's covenant with Jonathan, Saul's firstborn son. Now, this relationship started back in 1 Samuel, not too long after David defeated Goliath and got the attention of the king and his courts. Here's what we find in 1 Samuel 18, 1-4. You can follow along or just go back to this reference later, 1 Samuel 18, 1-4. I'll read it. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved them as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Much to Saul's chagrin, this oath was made and renewed twice once in 1 Samuel 20 and again in chapter 23. Let me read you from 1 Samuel 20, verses 13 to 15. This is Jonathan speaking to David while David's on the run as a fugitive. So this is 1 Samuel 20, 13 to 15. The Lord be with you as he has been with my father, and you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. There's a lot we can discuss here. For one, note how Jonathan's careful to distinguish himself and his house from David's enemies. This proves that Jonathan was the best son a man could ask for. He had foresight. He protected his parents and his family, which belongs to the old regime, by humbling himself and entering into a covenant with the one destined to be the next king. 
Note also how the kindness of the Lord is equated with David's kindness. And such kindness must be put into action. Promises do not simply occupy private, inward, mental space. They're not meant to be on walls, bookmarks, and bumper stickers only. Promises are meant to be kept. Love is meant to be expressed. Kindness is meant to be shown. Now to 2 Samuel. A man named Mephibosheth, going to be the recipient of that kindness. This isn't the first time we met this man. Back in chapter 4, we read about his, uh, in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, uh, we read about his tragic childhood as he lost his father, his grandfather, and ability to walk. Here's what we find in 2 Samuel 4.4. 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as, he, as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. And if you read this verse, 2 Samuel 4.4, 4, in the context of 2 Samuel 4, the chapter, you'll see how the house of Saul was waning. Abner's gone, Ishbosheth's assassinated, Mephibosheth's quite feeble, literally unable to rise to power as heir, even as he survives and reaches adulthood. So now let's read 2 Samuel 9. If you're following along in your pew Bible, you can find 2 Samuel 9 in page 217. 2 Samuel 9. Now David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant, that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. For Mephibosheth, Your master's son shall eat bread at my table always. 
Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. The central message of today's passage is quite simple. The heading at the top of 2 Samuel 9 in my Bible reads, David's kindness to Mephibosheth. That's an adequate summary. And compared to the varieties of locations and clashes and enemies and officials we saw in the previous chapter, this one's lighter in content, more straightforward. Yet what happens here, what happened here, um, happens here is no less significant. It's weighty. It's just as important as the battles at the front lines, the dedication of material goods and the appointment of cabinet members. That's because, as I said earlier, it has to do with the covenant. This chapter mainly consists of three conversations, two with Ziba and one with Mephibosheth. It doesn't take much effort to figure out that that there are three parts, verses 1 to 5, 6 to 8, and 9 to 13. Now let me dig a bit deeper and point out the unique features of the three parts. In verses 1 to 5, you'll see David's determination. Notice in verses 1 and 3, the repeated words and phrases in the questions, is there still of the house of Saul I may show kindness? Those questions are answered by Ziba, who tells the king in verse 4 about this one from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodebar. David wastes no time. In verse 5, we read with almost ho-hum repetitiveness, then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodebar. As for verses 6 to 8, we have the centerpiece of the chapter, verse 7 records David's words directly spoken to Mephibosheth. Verse 7 is key to understanding the entire passage. But focus on the surrounding verses, 6 and 8 for the moment, and note the repetitions. In verse 6, Mephibosheth's humble in words and actions as he calls himself a servant and prostrates himself. After David's words, there's Mephibosheth in verse 8, again calling himself a servant. He's bowing down. The same word as prostrate in verse 6. Of course, the reason that he's floored the second time around is markedly different than it was moments ago. We'll come back to that. On to verses 9 to 13. We see how each verse records a benefit bestowed on Mephibosheth. Verse 7 finds expression in these verses. For example, David had just promised him all the land of Saul. Now from that land, Ziba and those under him will harvest to feed the lame man and his son. Also, as if we needed the constant reminder, lest we forget, 
we read three more times that Mephibosheth is present at the king's table in verses 10, 11, and 13. Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. You got the message. So based on these observations and based on the overarching theme of covenant, I say there are three ways the grace of God leads us to be gracious to others. The grace of God leads us to be gracious when we, one, initiate the kindness of God. Initiate the kindness of God. That's verses 1 to 5. Two, emulate the merciful God. Emulate the merciful God. That's verses 6 to 8. Three, demonstrate the fellowship of God. Demonstrate the fellowship of God. That's verses 9 to 13. First, that's recipients of the Lord's promises initiate the kindness of God. Now, what David initiates here is remarkable, strange, extraordinary. That's because normally a new king eliminates rivals to his throne. Ordinarily, he'd establish his reign by taking down the former administration, but not so this king of Israel. He does what's contrary to human nature. Remember that David asked the questions in verses 1 and 3 before learning that Mephibosheth slain. He fully originally intended to help a member of Saul's house, even if he's able-bodied. A servant of the house, Ziba, would help in locating one. This is the first time we encounter Ziba. Though he was under Saul's authority, it appears he's at the highest rank among the servants. Verse 10 tells us that he himself had 20 servants that worked for him and his 15 sons. That probably means that Ziba enjoyed great privilege and position, perhaps similar to Eliezer of Damascus in Abraham's house. It's hard to know much else about Ziba. We'll talk about him again later in 2 Samuel. For now, in this chapter, he answers the king honestly concerning Mephibosheth, his status and location. Lodibar's mentioned three times in 2 Samuel, twice here in chapter 9, and once more in chapter 17. The context suggests that it's located beyond Jordan, past Mahanaim, north of it near Rogelim, in the land of Gilead. In other words, we're talking about 70 miles from Jerusalem. With this intel, David sends servants to bring Mephibosheth from his hideout. We'll get to their meeting in a moment. But again, let's think from David's end how he initiates the kindness of God. How did he do it? Why did he do it? It's because David had truly experienced the Lord's kindness that he can show kindness to Jonathan and his son. David talks about his experience in the Psalms. Psalm 6-4, he has cried out to God, Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. 
in Psalm 13, verse 5, he says he has trusted in his mercy. In Psalm 1850, he says, Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. The echoes of the Davidic covenant we saw earlier. He who knows the kindness of God shows the kindness of God. So let's apply this principle to our lives. It's because the Lord was first kind to us that we can take our loving initiative with others. You see how the gospel is not only about our relationship with God, as foundational as that is, there are direct consequences that overflow into our relationships with others in Christ. Meditate on 1 John 4, 10, 11 this week. 1 John 4, 10 to 11 says, see if you can uh, make this connection in there. Um, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Next verse says, Beloved, if God so loved us, loved us that way, we also ought to love another. We love God because he first loved us, but there's more love to be given. So initiate the kindness of God. Here's some suggestions for application. Pray through the church directory. Write a letter of encouragement to a shut-in. Show hospitality to a struggling believer. Send relief to a faithful missionary. Don't just wait around for someone else to get things started. Put to practice Romans 13.8. Open that love one another account and never stop drawing from it. Back to our Old Testament story. The king of Israel was not satisfied with mere initiation. He's going to see it through. There's more coming. As they follow the scene from the house of obscurity to the, royal, the throne of royalty, see how David emulates the merciful God. You know, try to picture Mephibosheth as he's transported from Lodabar to Jerusalem. Can you imagine what went through his mind? Here's my guess. Well, I try to live off my days in hiding, but the ground shrunk beneath my maimed feet. This is it for me. Perhaps I can assure the king that I'm no threat to his rule. But wait, that's a lame excuse. I'm no use to him and his kingdom either. What good am I as a cripple? Why should I live at all if I have nothing to add? I need to be careful with my words so he doesn't find Micah, my son, and eliminate him also. Perhaps Mephibosheth rehearsed over and over what he thought were going to be his last words. Then they arrived. The most capable man in Israel meets the most vulnerable man in society. He was to be alone before David, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. The court of the king will be the court of his final appeals. Now, if he did prepare anything to say, he didn't get a chance to say them, 
And that's because as soon as David called his name and Mephibosheth answered, the lame man heard the words that changed his life forever. I'll read them again. Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. The one who sits at the highest seat greets the one who lies down low to the ground. Do not fear. What words of comfort? David's increase of verses 1 and 3 find answer in verse 7. But don't miss that emphasis, surely. He won't merely show, he will surely show kindness. David takes advantage of this opportunity to the fullest. What kindness he initiates, he sees it to completion in abundance, land and food for all of Mephibosheth's days. As a result, fearful expectation turns into joyful exclamation. He goes from, here is your servant, to what is your servant, that you should do such thing. David doesn't do all this merely because he's a nice guy and he just he got a public image to maintain. He didn't feel extra generous those days. If there is an agenda on his part, it's God's agenda. David's up to good. The king wishes to emulate the merciful God. So this earthly throne becomes a simulation of the heavenly throne of grace. The lowly shepherd who became king plays the role of the great shepherd king. I wonder if Psalm 23 was like a script to him. Remember how that ends with verses 5 to 6. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The psalmist applies this truth. He opens that table. He grants the oil cup, the goodness, mercy, security to this poor son of Jonathan. How will you emulate the merciful God? Meditate on Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. As you think about how God made you a vessel of mercy, consider how he may use you as a channel of mercy. Let's go on to the final portion of this chapter where we see David demonstrating the fellowship of God. In this dog-eat-dog world, it would be enough that David spares Mephibosheth, who considered himself a dead dog. But that's not enough for David. Each verse in 9 to 13, as I said earlier, communicates assurance and consolation for Jonathan's son. The king's kindness is shown in the king's ransom. He spares no expense in showing mercy. Not only are the lame man and his son safe, 
He summons Ziba and subordinates him, his sons and servants to serve them. Mephibosheth went from what it looked like being an enemy to a friend, disgrace to honor, face down on the floor to sitting up at the table. That table's where he eats like one of the king's sons, where servants wait on him, where he enjoys the company of the gracious king. This is a taste of heaven. Story of Mephibosheth, amazing and rightly so. But I want all of us to know that David's words and actions are not the end all, be all, the main message of the Bible. We go on to find a greater kindness, a richer mercy, a sweeter fellowship through Jesus Christ. We find all these in the gospel. You see, apart from the gracious promises of the covenant, we're nothing but enemies of God. How do we end up as enemies? It was our wicked works, friendship with the world, rebellion, stubbornness, the rejection of the word of the Lord. All these sins puts us at odds with the holy God. We've broken his commands, lusted in heart, murdered in anger, spoke deception and blasphemies. It clearly says in the scriptures that such ones will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. So then what hope is there for us? We don't deserve to enter the city of God, but we continue in the Bible, and here comes someone from the line of David, yet greater than David in power and mercy. Not just the king, but the king of kings, whose kingdom knows no end. We're talking about Jesus about a thousand years after 2 Samuel 9. We're talking about Christ, God and man at the same time. We're talking about a king who not only shows kindness to the lame, it's through his reign that the prophecies of Isaiah 35, 3 to 6, come true. Hear these words. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. That's what's to come, and we saw a preview of that in the ministries of Jesus. But we won't enter the kingdom of heaven by heredity or by sincerity. As sinners, there is in us carnal minds, not subject to the law of God. There stands between us and him, enmity. Our iniquities have separated us from our God. Our sins have hidden his face from us so that he will not hear. We need someone to bridge the gap, to mediate a covenant between us and him. Again, here comes Jesus going to Calvary to be the mediator of the new covenant. By covenanting with Jesus, you'll find forgiveness and mercy. 
He went up to Jerusalem to suffer for our sins so that we may enter the new Jerusalem in peace. He did not wait for us to turn to the Lord. He initiated because we would have never initiated. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Jesus died for sinners on the cross, taking the penalty of hell on himself. He rose again from the grave and ascended to heaven after proving that he's alive. Someday he'll return to judge all mankind, the living and the dead. Before it's too late, you must surrender. Ask conditions of peace. Turn from your sins. Admit that any ability you think you have before God is really a spiritual disability and a liability. So like Mephibosheth, humble yourself before the eternal, immortal, invisible king. Trust in Jesus. All the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's true what was said long ago. Faith is like the hand of the beggar that takes the gift while adding nothing to it. That's what Mephibosheth grasped, and that's what we must grasp. But this offer won't last forever. Think carefully about the gospel. Respond to the Lord's initiative. Do not think you have forever to decide. Do not despise the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. Know that his goodness leads you to repentance. Know God's Son, and through him know God the Father. In Christ, there's kindness, mercy, fellowship, and I can't say it better than Paul in Ephesians 2. 4 through 7. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. A glory it is to know that there's a seat at the table for us. Reflect on his kindness as we sing our final song. What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the Mephibosheth is in many ways a reflection of who we are, helpless, unable to do anything, fearful of wrath. Lord, we need you and we're thankful that your son has initiated a kindness and Lord, it is through covenant with him that we can 
be saved, and be at the table at the supper of the Lamb. And we thank you that because of the kindness which we received, which we receive, we can give to others. However poorly that may be in, in terms of the fullness of your mercy, help us to do so this week. And we're thankful for your graciousness in our lives. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.